This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You are listening to tape from a few weeks back, a Monday morning in August. The sun's up, it's getting hot, and our producer, Madeline, is about to go to a panda birthday party. Hi. Can I, can I chat with you guys? I like your birthday hats. Okay. Madeline's at the National Zoo. There are like 50 people here and a whole lot of cameras. They're celebrating the fact that Xiao Qiji, the zoo's youngest panda, is one year older. He's about to slurp up a cake made out of diluted apple and pineapple juices. Would you call yourselves big panda fans? Well, her name's Amanda, so they call her Panda yeah. for like... My whole life, my nickname's been Amanda Panda, so most of my friends and family call me Panda. So I'm a big Panda fan. We do not go out into the field that often on this show. But come on, we're talking about pandas here. And right now, Washington, D.C., it's in a state over them. They are among the biggest stars in the nation's capital. I'm excited to see the panda. And their time in- this whole birthday party... It's also kind of a goodbye party. Today, Xiao Chi Ji is celebrating his third birthday. But unfortunately, Joe, it is likely his last one here in D.C. as all the pandas are going to be heading back to China at the end of the year. All of them? I know. This is so sad. Hold so, on, all of the pandas? All the pandas are going back. It turns out Washington's pandas are just on loan. That means they are heading back to China. And there's no guarantee that any of these animals will be replaced anytime soon. What is it about pandas? I, I watch the giant panda cam when I'm bored at work, and it brightens up my day. People just love these animals. Same. Honestly, in sixth grade, my teacher sponsored the panda for a year. I don't know how much money that costs. Oh, wow. But we would watch it every day, and I've loved them ever since. You know, there's just not a lot of zoos that have pandas in them. I mean, also, they're just lovable. Yeah, they're just They're the people's creature. Cozy. The parties have not stopped at the National Zoo. This week, they organized a nine-day extravaganza called Panda Palooza, a giant farewell. I called up someone who I thought could better explain the, forgive the pun, pandemonium here. Her name is Elena Songster. She's written a whole book called Panda Nation about how this simple bear became a national icon. She said Washington's panda parties, they make a lot of sense. At this particular juncture, there's very limited time left with the pandas. And so I'm sure that they want to make sure that they're properly celebrating every opportunity they can. Elena spoke to me from an office that is stuffed with panda Pez dispensers and panda art. What I'm saying is, even an academic like her is not immune to a panda's charms. Have you actually touched a panda? I have touched a panda, but it was a captive panda. They're coarse, not soft, as you'd expect them to be. I've heard this called the end of an era 
for pandas in the U.S. Do you feel like it is? Uh, yes, actually. Um, I haven't heard that or probably wouldn't have said that, but I think that it's a fair statement to say. At the end of this year, the National Zoo Pandas will return, and then the Atlanta Zoo Pandas are scheduled to go back to China in 2024, and then there will be no more pandas in the United States. Hold it, none? None. Today on the show, all across the country, pandas are being called back to China. And these bears, once a symbol of friendship between the United States and China, they're morphing into something else. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So you have this phrase you use when you talk about pandas in the United States, the ones that China sent to the U.S. for years now. This phrase is panda diplomacy. Can you define panda diplomacy? Like, what, what is that? Well, I haven't, I definitely did not coin the term, but I do use the term. Uh, and what I mean by it when I use the term panda diplomacy is that pandas are serving diplomatic purposes. I am now imagining like a panda with like a hat, like walking <laughs> into the State Department. Right. Well, they have, um, you know, I refer to them as animal ambassadors and they are symbols of China. They represent uh, the People's Republic of China. And as such, um, the Chinese government learned in 1972 when they gave a gift of pandas to the United States. They knew that the pandas would be popular with the people, but I think that they didn't realize the degree to which pandas really engaged and inspired an intense amount of adoration among a populace. Yeah, how did panda diplomacy start? The first act of panda diplomacy was actually when the wife of Chiang Kai-shek, Song Meiling, and her sister sent a pair of pandas to the United States during the war of resistance against Japan as an expression of gratitude for U.S. support of China during that conflict. Hmm. Now, what's different about that was the U.S. and China at that time were 
allies. And so uh, even while this was a big deal, it didn't make as huge a splash in the media as in 1972 when the pandas were offered to the United States during Nixon's visit to China. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries. And the reason why it was such an incredibly big deal at that time was because prior to Nixon's visit, the U.S. and China were enemy states. And so Nixon's visit was kind of this first major high-profile effort to warm relations between China and the U.S. The Chinese people saw pictures of President Nixon meeting Chairman Mao Zedong on their own television screens on Tuesday. Pictures of Chairman Mao are rarely seen in China, but pictures of Mr. Nixon are even rarer. And so pandas became very tied with that particular event. Uh, and so from that point forward, you really see this, this transition in the way pandas were viewed with regard to foreign relations. So the value of the panda was that China was giving these adorable animals to a country that it had an uneasy relationship with. And so it really felt like it, it was sweet in some way. Right. Uh, it was a very deliberate gesture of friendship. And part of the component of that, too, I was told by a state official uh, when I was doing research on this in China, that it was during that process of deciding to give these pandas to the United States that they coined the term national treasure in association with the giant panda. What makes the panda a national treasure? Well, one of the things that makes it a national treasure is that it's only found within the boundaries of the People's Republic of China. So it's something only China can give you. Only China can give you a panda. That's right. And then in addition to that, the panda is also a very unique animal in the animal kingdom. One of the things is that it hasn't evolved that much in the past million years. And so huh. it's a very primitive animal. It's been called a living fossil. And then it was very difficult to determine like where it fit, how to classify the panda. And so there have been huge debates that have gone on for decades, really. Is it not a bear? Most people now agree that it is a type of bear, but it's a special bear. It's obviously a special bear. It's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the pandas came over in the 1970s, how did Americans react? So there was mixed a mixed reaction, some kind of hesitation uh, and speculation that China was somehow going to trick the United States. And so in the newspapers that preceded the actual arrival, there was a, a fair amount of concern expressed that maybe China would send old pandas that wouldn't be able to mate or two females or two males. <laughs> They're sending us bum pandas. <laughs> <laughs> right. Somehow it wasn't going to be everything everyone hoped. But in fact, they were a young pair that were good, a good mating age. And it was a male and it was a female and they were healthy, good specimens. And when they arrived and they were adorable, um, the U.S. population just fell in love with them. Can you describe that? Like, what did that look like? Because, I mean, I grew up in around D.C. And I just I still remember how Panda identified the National Zoo has been and is. 
Well, so the descriptions that I read in both U.S. and Chinese newspapers talk about, uh, <laughs> one described that there was so much pomp and circumstance, it was if Mao Zedong himself was coming to the United States. And there were dignitaries and diplomats and um, crowds of people there to welcome the pandas. We're particularly grateful to have an opportunity on to have pandas in the United States. We never expected to see them, really, and we're delighted to be here, to be able to present Mrs. Nixon, I think the first panda pin that has been available in America. Thank you very much for this lovely uh, photo album of the pandas and for this beautiful picture and best of all for the gift of the pandas which all children whatever age will enjoy and I include myself in that category. I noticed Dr. Ripley is wearing a panda tie and I have my panda pin I'll have you know and I think pandemonium is going to break out right here at the zoo. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do you feel like in the 70s and 80s, the pandas were doing their jobs? By which I mean, like, somehow making the United States and China more friendly? I would say so. I mean, I think the most dramatic shift that you see is between when the um, gift is announced and when the pandas actually arrive. And so I think it, of course, doesn't erase all the tensions between the two countries, but it gave the people of the United States this very innocent-looking, apolitical-looking, adorable-looking animal that was representing this country in a very appealing and non-threatening and friendly way. Those first pandas that arrived in the U.S., they were just gifts, no strings attached. But eventually, China saw how popular these beasts were, and they realized these animals could be lucrative. Also, in the 1980s, China started to become concerned with just how many pandas they'd given away when wild giant pandas were struck with a starvation scare. Anyway, China pivoted. They began sharing their national treasure with the world through a rent-a-panda program. Zoos would acquire the animals for just a few months at a time. One even came to L.A. for the 1984 Olympics. This system wasn't so great either, and ended up being too physically challenging for the endangered species. But from that point on, China was not giving pandas away. I asked Elena about what she thinks about this diplomatic gesture turning into something more like a profitable business. Was the money the only reason China got a little more stingy with their pandas? It can't be said that that wasn't a factor in calling an end to the gift system, the system of giving pandas to other countries, um, because Mexico was the only of the first nine countries that the People's Republic of China gave pandas to. The only one that was successful in captive breeding was Mexico. And hmm. they did actually start to engage in negotiations and discussions about trading pandas for other specimens, which is very common for zoos to do. But that put China on edge because it did realize when that happened that they didn't have control over the pandas that they'd given away. Right, their whole value, like we said, was the fact that you can only get them in China. 
Right. Then it's not as much of a symbol of China. It's not as valuable to the country. So the first kind of stage of panda diplomacy really was this gifting of pandas that occurred mostly in the 70s and the early 1980s. And then when the next phase was the short-term loans of the 1980s. And then uh, when that was brought to a close in the United States, China, in cooperation with uh, other kind of animal specialists and zoo specialists in the United States and elsewhere, came up with this new formula, which is the long-term scientific exchange loan. And so it solved a lot of the problems that the short-term loans were critiqued about, namely that it wasn't as stressful for the pandas because it was going to be 10 years at a minimum as opposed to three months. And the cost was going to be very expensive. Uh, And one of the reasons for that was so that the host zoos wouldn't be seen as profiting off of an endangered species. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, the cost of getting a loner panda could be like a million dollars a year. Exactly, yes. And you don't have control over the progeny of that panda. Right, right, because that all belongs to China, and that was all written into these scientific agreements. And so part of those agreements were also that the offspring also belonged to China and would be returned when was deemed appropriate, which was usually around three years. It's just so funny to think about like this thing that started as a gesture of friendship, which is pretty meaningful. It also became this marketing opportunity and cash cow. Right. Exactly. So it was, it has been the case that some zoos have had to fundraise um, in order to keep the pandas because of the kind of expensive fee associated with it. But even still, uh, because pandas are so popular and so adored, a lot of places have been able to make a lot of money. After the break, how panda diplomacy began to go sideways. Recently, panda diplomacy got weird. First, Congress tried to get involved. Republicans proposed a bill to essentially give birthright citizenship to all pandas born on American soil, which is in defiance of longstanding scientific agreements that ensure giant panda offspring born abroad still belong to the People's Republic of China. The idea here would be that the U.S. could keep a panda, like three-year-old Xiao Qiji, He was born at the National Zoo to panda parents on loan from China. This bill did not really go anywhere, and it probably would not have been enforceable. But it illustrates a growing frustration with the way China operates when it comes to pandas and all sorts of other things. The mood at the National Zoo is also a little melancholy. When our producer attended that panda birthday celebration, they spoke with the director of the zoo, who actually started tearing up as she talked about Xiao Qiji's birth. His his birth to me was just such an unforgettable moment uh, because, you know, he was conceived during the pandemic. We thought that Meishang wouldn't have another cub given her age. And when he was born, I'm getting emotional now, when he was born, you know, this healthy, beautiful baby panda was just this um, moment of hope, this bright spot. You know, this was in the pandemic, uh, this incredibly wonderful moment to celebrate joy in life. For now, the zoo is declining to answer questions about the future of the panda program. Another reason that panda diplomacy is at a low point is because of something that happened a few months back 
at the Memphis Zoo. I asked Elena Songster to explain. So what happened was there was a pair of pandas in the Memphis Zoo, and they were already scheduled to return to China. And the male panda died while still in Memphis. And the female panda has a skin condition. She did not look good. She had patches of fur that was miss that was missing, and she was skinny. Yeah, and so um, so there was concern on the part of the netizens in China who were posting about this that the Memphis Zoo was mistreating or neglecting the pandas. But after the autopsy, they determined that the male panda Lila died of a heart condition and that the female panda, while she did not look good, she had a known skin condition. And so what I think is so interesting about kind of the outrage that occurs that it was shared by citizens of the United States and citizens in China, and they were communicating with each other about it online. Hmm. And you had animal rights activists who didn't have connection to China per se, but they were concerned about the pandas just because Yaya looked so bad because of her skin condition. And then when Lila died and it took a little time between the death and the uh, autopsy results, <laughs> just even an hour is a pl- plenty of time for um, internet posters to speculate the worst. Well, in China, my understanding is that it became like this trending topic, like bring Yaya home to rescue her. Absolutely. They wanted her to come home before she was scheduled to come home, even at, though it was only a few months away. And um, they wanted to call an end to panda diplomacy and things like China's precious pandas shouldn't be subject to of the care of other countries because they can't do it well. So there's lots of these types of things being posted um, in the China. And they were putting a lot of pressure on their own government. And so this is where this particular example is quite different from most of the other cases of panda diplomacy in that the citizens had become intensely active in their involvement and engagement with this and putting pressure on the government. And so the Chinese government found itself in a position where it had to kind of defend its actions, right? So it's a very interesting case because it did bring the citizens of the United States and the citizens of China together, but they were together in anger (laughs) and outrage. It strikes me that the whole panda situation in the United States right now is sort of like the perfect metaphor for the U.S.-China relationship more broadly. Just because it's like panda diplomacy started off as this kind of hopeful, friendly thing. And then it got pretty capitalist. It was like, we're going to make money and be very proprietary about the animal's DNA, and they have to come back to China at the end. And now it kind of feels like the whole thing is disintegrating a little bit. Is it just me? Uh, No, no. I mean, I think that's fair. I think you see a shift in China's also position in the world as well. In 1972, they were really needing to reach out to the globe and have friends and catch up scientifically and catch up with technology. And, uh, and so the pandas helped with some of these other exchanges. And then during the 19, late 90s and 2000s, there's a lot of things going on, but China's much more in a position of control and authority. But now, yeah, now I think that China is 
also a little bit more difficult to uh, to really understand, to be perfectly honest, in terms of what the government's intentions are. What do you think should happen now with these pandas all going back to China? I mean, there are going to be these empty panda enclosures. What do you think happens next? I don't think it's time to, like, give up hope because panda diplomacy is so amazingly successful uh, and it is such a good diplomatic tool for China. Well, that's interesting. Why do you say that? Why do you think it's been such a success? I think because people can bring to the panda whatever they want to bring to the panda because the panda doesn't say anything and it doesn't do anything offensive usually. It really uh, has a way of kind of reaching to that kind of inner part of the human psyche that's just like all these like cute, fluffy animals kind of calm people down and make them feel happier. You're a panda optimist. (laughs) I am a panda optimist. Yeah, so I think that pandas will come back at some point. I have no idea when. Will it tell you something when they do? Uh, Yes, I think it will. Um, I, and I'm assuming without having interviewed anyone in the Chinese government, um, they're always very savvy about whom they loan pandas to. Um, they're good with timing. And it's my assumption that this is a very deliberate shift and that they have something in mind and that they will be in a more powerful position to renegotiate panda loans when there are no pandas in the United States. And then it will become clear you know, what their plan is, but I don't know what it is or when that will happen. Oh, that's so interesting. How you're like, they're just getting their pandas back to China and then boom, there's going to be a plan. <laughs> so I'm just thinking like, recognize Taiwan as China and we'll give you a panda. <laughs> like, like what, is the, what is the negotiation yeah, going to be? That's, um, that's a good point. Um, because they played a big role in Taiwan as well. There's a lot. That was the other place where there was a lot of controversy about panda diplomacy. Oh, really? In what way? They offered pandas to the island of Taiwan. And so there were protests in the street and a lot of debates about whether or not Taiwan should accept the pandas. And uh, repeatedly expressed concern that if they did, uh, then they were accepting mainland stance that uh, the island of Taiwan was part of China. And so in the end, they did accept the pandas after Ma Jo became president. It just shows how powerful the pandas are. Like these pandas, I mean, you could just say no to the pandas. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this, this is an example of how appealing the pandas are, that people uh, who feel strongly about the politics in terms of the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China are still willing to accept the pandas because they like the idea of having pandas on the island, being able to go and see them. It's like the definition of soft power. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Soft and cuddly power. And even, you know, there are other elements to that process, too, is that one of the first times that China really started involving its citizenry in panda diplomacy was while they're waiting for Taiwan's response. They asked the citizens of mainland China to choose names for these pandas, and they chose the name Tuan Tuan Yuan Yuan, which means unify. What? <laughs> wow. And, you know, the island still accepted the pandas. 
Did they keep the names? Yeah, they did. They kept the names. My God, people love a panda. They love the panda. Elena, thank you so much for joining the show and telling me about your research. I'm grateful. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Elena Songster is a professor at St. Mary's College of California. She's also the author of Panda Nation, the construction and conservation of China's modern icon. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you later.